Before we start this episode of Conversations with Kenyatta, I'm excited to tell you about my new partnership with Audible. Listeners can go to www.audibletrial.com backslash Kenyatta to receive a free 30-day trial. Audible is a wonderful resource with audiobooks for every reader. It even has titles from authors that have been on my podcast, such as Dr. Dan Bouts' Democracy's Data and Gail Lukasik's White Like Her. And please note that this is an affiliate link. So I may receive a commission with no cost to you, just a fee trial with so many wonderful titles. And I love to read. But with that, here's this week's episode of Conversations with Kenyatta. Welcome to episode 33 of Conversations with Kenyatta. Today, our guest is Dr. Betty Kearse the author of The Other Madisons, The Lost History of a President's Black Family. She's a retired pediatrician and geneticist. Well, welcome Dr. Betty Kearse to Conversations with Kenyatta. We have known each other for quite some time. Um, I believe we met when I lived in Cambridge around 2006. And I'm so excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to be here. We met uh, regarding my research for my book, and actually the story just goes on and on. I'm always doing, even though the book has been published, I'm, I'm still doing research and learning more and more about my ancestors, especially my enslaved ancestors, which is really exciting and rewarding. And I think that's the thing when you get into family history, it never ends really, right? You're always, as you said, learning right. more. So I wanted to know, well, when and how did you get started researching your family history? Well, I started doing serious research in 1990. Uh, and that was the time that my mother actually told me to write a book <laughs> about our family history. But the history is one that I had heard since I was about five years old. I was told over and over that we descend from an enslaved cook and President James Madison. But in 1990, I came to, became the family griot, which is the female griot. So more people are familiar with the term griot, but a griot and a griot are oral uh, historians. And it comes from an ancient African tradition, probably going on at least 2000 years, probably before the, the birth of Christ. But anyway, to get back <laughs> to answering your question, when this role became mine and my mother asked me to write a book, she meant that she just wanted me to record the family stories, the family history that had been passed down for uh, about eight generations. But when I took on this role, I kind of wanted to fill in the gaps. And she had done research herself. She had traveled to um, Montpelier, James Madison's former plantation in Virginia. She had gone to Salt Lake City, to the um, Mormon 
oh, I can't think of the name of it, but the, where they have all the uh, archives of, of families. And I just sort of picked up where she left off, repeated some of her, her steps. I think the most important one that I repeated was going to Montpelier and meeting the staff there and having a, a very wonderful uh, reception because they had just begun some of their excavations into uh, slave sites on on um, the plantation, so they were they were glad to sort of add to to their story. But you know, my research continues. I continue to go to Montpelier. I continue to uh, read all I can, and you know, uh, learn as much as I can because the story of the uh, of slavery in America is still evolving. Mm-hmm. Still, yeah. So anyway, I don't want to go on and on on, on on that question, but I think it is important to know that this is an ongoing quest. It is, I think, for everyone, at least also for, well, for me and my family and for other folks that I've met, it is an ongoing quest to uncover your ancestors. It's not something that's very easy to do, and it's complex work. But I wanted to kind of comment on a few things you mentioned. One, the facility in Salt Lake City, I believe, is probably the family uh, history center, family or the libraries there in Salt Lake, which is where they house a lot of the information. That's where you get the genealogy information and access to records. Family History Library, let me correct myself. I haven't been there in a couple of years due to COVID, so um, I, uh, I can't wait to get back. But also, I want to talk a little bit about the reception you got at Mount Pillar and the staff there. Um, how did you approach them? When Did you walk in and say, hey, um, based on family oral history, I believe I'm a descendant or connected uh, to President uh, James Madison? Well, that's sort of what happened. I, you know, I, I just arrived and I started off in a group, you know, just people from around the country who wanted to take a tour. But I kept distracting the tour guide with questions about slavery uh, uh, at Montpelier. And so he referred me to Lynn Lewis, who was the director of anthropology at the time. So as I said, you know, she was very excited uh, to hear to hear my my story. And since then, that was in 1992 that I actually went there. Mm-hmm. But since then, I have gone there many many times. I don't even know how many times, and I have had emails and telephone conversations with the, with the staff and all the whole staff, mm-hmm. uh, his, not just the archaeologist, but also the historians and, and other researchers who were there. They have been very involved in wanting to be able to tell the whole story of, of Montpelier. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so the reception and the help has always been uh, just phenomenal. I didn't run into any 
resistance from the staff, mm-hmm. such as I believe happened at Botticello. But mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the, your book and kind of dig deeper into the research, I want to give listeners a little bit of information or more information about you and your career. Um, so how did it evolve? What did you study? Kind of what, what has your career been like? Because I believe this has been like a passion based on what your mom said when your mom said to you, you know, write a book and your understanding of your family history and being the, you know, the person who owns the story. But what about Dr. Betty Kears and her career? My career beyond the book. Beyond the <laughs> because, book. <laughs> yeah, the book has really become my my life's purpose because of what I've learned about enslaved people. But my career was completely different. I was a pediatrician in inner city Boston and uh, for 31 years in the Dorchester neighborhood, which is pretty much a, a working class neighborhood. I trained at Children's Hospital, but right after that, started working in Dorchester, first at Kearney Hospital, and then at Neponset Health Center. And, um, well, actually, I forgot one part of my career. How did I forget? I, I had my own practice for 15 years. Yeah, my own pediatric practice. And um, I started that practice. I came to uh, Carney Hospital after finishing my training in 1983. And I was on, I worked in the clinic in the emergency room and on the wards at Carney Hospital until 1986. And then I stole my patients and opened my own practice in the medical office building at Carney. So I, I did have their approval and support. And I did at my own practice for 15 years. And then the insurance companies and the way billing was done, just and the electronic, I mean, it just got to be too unwieldy for a solo practitioner. And so then I retired in 2014. And I stayed retired for about two years. And then I started missing my patients. And wondering what happened to this patient and what happened to that patient. And then I looked for a job and found a wonderful job at the Ponset Health Center, which is a community-based health center. And some of my patients found me, and then I met new patients. Great. Well, thanks for doing that. <laughs> part of your life. I mean, I think we all start have a career outside of family history and genealogy at some point, but then it overtakes everything. But let's get into into your book. We talked a little bit about it, but the title of it is "The Other Madisons: The Lost History of a President's Black Family." And we got talk, discussed a little bit about what made you decide to write the book. Right, your mom wanting you to write a book. In 1990, your visits to Mount Pillar, the more you learned about your family. But who specifically is Mandy and how is she related to you? Mandy was my family's first African ancestor in America and also our first griot. So she started the griot tradition in, in my family and in, in this country. 
And she was captured off the shore of Ghana, somehow survived the Middle, middle Passage, was purchased by James Madison Sr., probably in, in Fredericksburg, Virginia, and then brought to Montpelier. And according to the family history, instead of being placed on, in one of the huge tobacco um, farm areas of the plantation, she was sent off to a small cotton field that was set aside for enslaved people to make their own clothing, what they call, or what they call Negro cloth. And it was in this relatively secluded area that Madison Sr., the future president's father, Madison Sr., first saw her. And uh, the way it is told in my family, she drew his attention, which is a term I, I've, I've never liked, but I'm just saying that's the way the family history has been told for generations until I came along and challenged it. And the result of that attraction was the birth of a daughter, Corrine. And Corrine is the enslaved cook who had the relationship with James Madison, Jr., the future president. So how did you find out, um, you know, outside of, I guess, not find out, but kind of verify outside of family history that Corrine was the daughter of James Madison, Sr.? And I asked that no. question. Corrine was the daughter. Oh, yes, that's correct. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead in the story. You are correct. Okay. Yeah. So I asked that question because a lot of times in doing this research, and I believe when we were, when we met many eons ago in Massachusetts, um, you know, it's difficult when you say to someone or you approach, you know, maybe the descendants of a, a president or, you know, the stewards of his uh, presidential plantation. And you say, my ancestor was the daughter of the president's father, right? Sometimes they, at least has been my experience in the past that they, they didn't believe you. So I know you've had a warm reception, but for some listeners who might have some ancestors who are connected to famous people, how do you kind of verify that information and then get folks to work with you to do that, right, on the other side? The main source of my uh, information is oral history. And oral history is vital to African-Americans knowing anything really about, about their ancestors. There are little, you know, there are little clues, there's little tidbits of facts that, you know, support the story that has been, been passed down. Mm -hmm. And in doing the research for your book, right, and finding these tidbits of information, what are some of the kind of like highs and lows, right? Because we have those, I kind of call them like genealogy angels where you find this information and you're so excited and this person guides you along the way. But then there's also sometimes you discover things that, you know, kind of 
I won't say tug at the heartstrings, that sounds way too cliche, but what I'm saying is sort of the lows that make you kind of wonder about society and about American history and how, how and why these things happen to your family. Does that make sense? I'm not sure. I'm going to give you an answer, although I'm not sure it's the answer to the question you're asking. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> but <laughs> the highs have come from the staff of Montpelier. You know, their willingness to go out of their way to help me and to present evidence that they had discovered that support my, my story. And they have put the name Kareen on the wall where they list all the, the names of all the enslaved people who once worked there. And, and as I said, this is ongoing because they are still doing research. The lows come from people who just can't believe President Madison would ever do such a thing. Hmm. And I've, no one has ever been mean to me or rude to me, but I have had resistance. Hmm. I think that some information has been withheld from me. And I, I, I just know that some members of the National Society of Madison Family Descendants okay. are not happy with the uh, story I have presented through my, through my book. Mm -hmm. So those would, be, those would be the lows. Right. And well, I think it's fantastic. Um, that the staff has been so great. I mean, that's wonderful. And and you it's, have a great relationship with them. And since the beginning, you've experienced that. And taking away the lows, let's focus on the highs. And thinking about what has been the reaction to the book, like within the, in, within the general community, African-American community, you know, just folks that have written books about their family history or who want to tell their story, what has been the reaction to the other Madisons? Oh, it's a bit very strong. I've been told, okay, you encourage me now to go out and find out about my own family. And I think that is so important. If that's all that happened, I, I would be happy. But from people who do not have slave ancestry, they have told me that they're surprised but are eager to know the whole story. They have felt they have felt enlightened, and have been um, grateful to me for for the book. I I mean I think it's like you said the inspiration piece is really important when you inspire other folks to read their family history to write their story. Yeah, that is very powerful. And let's get to writing because as someone who's written a book, I know it's not an easy thing to do. So um, how long did it take you to write the book? Now, I know the research process <laughs> took a long time, but the actual pen to paper kind of first draft, how long did that take for you? Well, you know, they went hand in hand. The writing and the research went hand in hand because 
the writing helped focus the research and then the research redirected the writing. But so it took 30 years. The reason it took 30 years is when my mother gave me this assignment, she just wanted me to write down all the stories so that they wouldn't be lost. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, our, our family history could become part of American record, so to speak. So I wrote that book. I wrote a whole book. And I had a mentor whose name was John Tebble. And he was uh, director or head of the department of journalism at the New School in New York. And he says, well, baby, this is all interesting, but nobody's going to care except your own family. He said, if you write this as fiction, then other people, readers, can identify with your, with your family. So I fictionalized it so that my ancestors could sort of speak to other people's ancestors who had gone through similar experiences. So that was a work of fiction, mm-hmm. but it wasn't very good. <laughs> so I was in a very rigorous writing course at Radcliffe Seminars. Okay. And it was called Writing for Publication. So they were serious. And the instructor was serious about our writing at a level that would be, could be published. And so the, the students and the teachers said that the characters stayed, were flat. They stayed on the page. It didn't evoke any emotions. And that really surprised me because I was practically crying when I'm writing some of those, uh, some of the, the stories I was developing. But I had written a prologue. And the prologue was about how my mother first heard the stories, how my grandfather taught her her colors and her letters on the trains that passed behind their small house in uh, what was then uh, a small town in Navasota, Texas. Now, Navasota has since become a fairly big town. But there was a railroad track behind their house. And so my, my grandfather taught my mother and her two brothers their, their colors, their letters, and some words. So her first word might have been something that she saw was like Texas or railroad. But they were, my class was very intrigued uh, by this. They said, well, why don't you write the whole book like that? Yeah. So it was like family stories, kind of memoirish, but mostly it was families family stories, intimate stories. And so I wasn't ready to write a whole book, so I wrote a series of essays. And once I was done, I had a lot of essays. I saw themes, and I put them together. It still wasn't working, and what was missing was me. Hmm. No, my narrative, my response to... uh, my own legacy, how I was growing as I wrote the book and as I did the research. So these things were going on at the same time. So once I put myself in it, 
Mm-hmm. It, it became um, a memoir and it became a personal story that other readers could kind of see themselves. And we all have our quest. Mm-hmm. We all kind of want to grow, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so that's, that's why it took 30 years. <laughs> I'm I a slow grower. <laughs> <laughs> no, we are growing. I mean, this is so fascinating to me and I'm, I'm just captivated like by the story and you describe in the process and just, you know, Texas and kind of the, your mom and her brothers learning from, um, their grandfather, and then putting yourself into it, right? Because as someone who's working on her second book, I struggle a lot with how do I kind of put Kenyatta's voice into it, right? Um, and and just get it done. I mean, it really is the, is the part. And I appreciate you having the mentor, you know, having the mentor and then putting yourself through that rigorous class because that holds you accountable. And I think for anyone listening that wants to write about their family history or write a book, holding yourself accountable is the hardest thing um, to do and getting someone else to hold you accountable, but then making sure you meet their deadlines is just as hard. So I'll just throw that in from my own personal experience, but I appreciate you describing that. Um, So in this research, you've learned so much more about your family, right? You're continuing to learn What's kind of next for you? Is there? Are you writing another book? Are you going to, you know, do kind of a lecture series? What is Dr. Betty Kears doing in the future? What I'm doing now is an e- even greater long shot than writing and publishing a book. And that is I am writing a feature film based wow. on based on the book and that's a steep learning curve for me also because writing a film is entirely different from writing a book i learned how to write a book and i could probably write another one i thought about writing another one i was going to write one for um, young adults so they could you know, sort of read about it on, in their way. And I was going to write a children's picture book so they could begin. And I will still, still do that. Mm-hmm. But right now I'm taking a course on film writing and that talking about a challenge. <laughs> I'm taking those courses so I know. Oh my gosh. So they say, the first thing you have to do is write a log line. And so I'm like, okay, what's a log line? <laughs> right. Summarize, which is, you know, telling your whole story in one sentence. And then, okay, you've done your log line. Now you have to write a treatment. Okay, I'm like, okay, what's a treatment? <laughs> yeah, it's such a different structure. structure it is. Courses. I lived in Northern California. It was like this really quick, like three day thing. And I, this is before I wrote the Family Tree Toolkit. And I remember thinking, walking out of there, there's no way I could do this. This is just, it is so, it's just such a different thought process. So I applaud you for, you know, even going down that, uh, down that path. But what made you decide to, to do that? And, and sort of have you already identified someone to, 
like an agent or someone to work with you to get this uh, screenplay, you know, to film? I decided to do it because not everybody enjoys reading books. Got it. And um, I wanted to reach a wider audience with my message about, uh, let me say what the message <laughs> is, um, that enslaved people were really remarkable individuals who possessed inner strength and a sense of hope. Mm -hmm. But what's really important to me about that message is that when the enslaved people died, it, their strengths did not die with them. Their sense of hope did not die with them. They passed them on to, through the generations, including those of us alive today. And so I want young people to see those strengths in themselves mm -hmm. and to have a sense of hope. And as I learned by working in inner city Boston, that, that um, belief in themselves was really among the uh, young people is really in jeopardy. So anyway, young people go to movies. <laughs> they may not want to write it. So that, that, was, that was why I kind of veered off from the other writing projects I had thought of doing. But I want, I want to say uh, something else, which you said you didn't think you could do it. Most things that are worth doing do require a commitment a strong commitment. And it also requires a belief in yourself. I mean, you didn't think you could do it, but you did it. So you actually did believe in yourself. And, and that is a very important message to pass on to anyone. Know what, you know, decide what you want. Know that you can do it. And then, and then stick to it, do it, even if it takes you 30 years or however long, because in the end, it's, it's worth it for you. And it's, it's worth it uh, to, to your community, to your audience, to, to other people in, in general. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for the words of encouragement and for, uh, for me <laughs> and for the audience. But I want to get back to your message because you said something um, that really resonated with me kind of like that sense of hope in inner city when you were working as a pediatrician and what you saw. And as someone, you know, growing up in Detroit, inner city Detroit, you know, it's not this, I mean, there's similarities or whatever, but it is that sense of hope and resilience that I feel comes from our enslaved ancestors that gets passed down through generation, through generations. But you, young people need to know that and understand that and see that because there's so many different things coming at you that make it seem as though you cannot do something. You can't get out of a certain situation, right? You're only going to be in this job or your only way out is to be an athlete or an entertainer or whatever, but not to be a genealogist, a lawyer, a doctor, or, you know, whatever, anthropologist. So I feel like your message is great and something that really speaks to me because I want people to see that. And that's kind of one of the reasons I do what I do is to make sure those stories are told and to make sure people understand that you're sitting here, wherever it is, because someone survived for you to be here. And, and that's critical. Um, so I just want to say that, that I totally agree with you and I'm excited um, 
to, to see the film. I'm excited you're taking the, the challenge and writing it. And my last question for you, because you've been to Mount Pillar, and I've, I've noticed in my work, now you've been to Mount Pillar many times, let me correct myself, and obviously have a connection there, a big connection. But I've noticed in my work with the descendant communities and institutions, whether they're um, plantations or historical you know, plantations or whether it's universities, there seems to be kind of sometimes uh, a disconnect between the institution and the descendant community as far as how they want to represent the stories, right? The institution may want it one way, the descendants want it in another way. So what's your opinion on the situation, specifically at Mount Pillar, and then what advice would you give to others who might be listening that are part of the descendant community, how they could connect or be more involved with their institution? Well, let me just give you a, a little bit of, of history of what happened at Montpelier. And you're absolutely right. There has been uh, a disconnect between the descendants and the people who are portraying their stories to the general public. That is, you know, the, the institutions, the board, or de- depending on how the um, given institution is set up. So recognizing that, Montpelier in 2018, with the support of the National Trust for Historic Preservation, held a workshop, I guess it would be called a workshop, and they, they addressed, the goal was to address that problem, to figure out how to address that problem. And so I think it was a, like 50 or so scholars and descendants and museum experts gathered at Montpelier and came up with the, the rubric of best practices for descendant engagement in the interpretation of slavery at museums and, and historic sites. So we just called the rubric. <laughs> <laughs> and it it's a self-assessment tool for different organizations, museums, uh, other historic sites. It's a self-assessment tool to see how are they doing in telling the, the story in, that's complete and in a way that really represents the descendants. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, it's a wonderful tool that's been lauded. And in 2019, the Montpelier Descendants Committee was established as the first organization to um, institute the rubric. So I don't know how far you want me to go with this because I know you're going to be talking with James French, Mm -hmm. who was the founding chairman of the Descendants, the Montpelier Descendants Committee, and who is now the chairman of the board of the Montpelier Foundation. Mm -hmm. I know you're going to be talking with him, and he he lived this, and he can tell you more, more about it. But the bottom line is it wasn't easy. 
that even though this rubric was lauded throughout uh, the country, especially those that were interpreting slavery, mm-hmm. there was a lot of resistance on the part of, it was accepted by uh, bylaw changes were made at Montpelier to uh, institute what's called structural parity. And structural parity just means um, equal representation and empowerment at the board level. Right. So in 2021, structural parity was instituted at Montpelier through bylaw changes. And then the following year, they backed down. They, they didn't like it. They, and so they reversed it. And then, as you probably know, it's a big media blitz. And the end result is that parity was re, um, structural parity was reinstated at, at Montpelier. Mm-hmm. But it's a struggle. And I think that's the important thing to, for other organizations to know. It's people don't like change. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to say sometimes it's, you know, it's about power, but sometimes it's not just power. Sometimes it's about the story that they want to tell. Exactly. <laughs> That's one of the things that is so interesting to me because maybe um, you know, some of our listeners may or may not have been to Mount Pillar, but I've been to the Colors of Distinction exhibit and it, it's very powerful. It's, it's something when you walk through there you're changed, you know? I remember when I went through it, I've been several times, but the one time I went with University Studying Slavery and a group of us were there. And once you get through it, you know, you could kind of, somehow we ended up like walking out the front and we were kind of on that, you know, the grand entrance on the porch and we're kind of looking out over just the vastness. And in my head, I was imagining the enslaved folks that were working this plantation after seeing this story, after hearing their story, after seeing their name. And there's other folks that don't do a great job, I will not name them now, in the same in the same area of telling the story of the enslaved. And for the descendants, it's important for us, right? Because, you know, these stories haven't been told for so long. And even though people don't like change, some of it's about power. They wanna, you know, have their own narrative. I often say to people, I just need you to help me find my people. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. You're looking for your ancestors. I'm looking for mine. We just have different ways of getting to the same answer. And sometimes the harshness and reality of American history is there. You have to face it. So I think that that's important for anyone listening to to consider if there is that resistance. But I want to ask you one last question. In 2021, like what happened to kind of flip everything? Because I know I saw the media pieces of it. Some folks may have not read it in Washington Post and all of that, but what was the, the catalyst to flip it from, hey, we all agreed to this to now all of a sudden, I don't like this? Well, once the bylaws were changed in June of 2021, there was an almost immediate change of heart I think that the ideals of the rubric look wonderful. You know, they look, and and they are wonderful. Mm 
um, they are they show an opportunity for national growth and a, a national acceptance of, of its whole story. So it looks good. It looks really good. Mm-hmm. But when you come down to doing it, it means we're going to have to change. And some people just after kind of being caught up in the moment, not easily though. I mean, there was, there was some struggle uh, with that board vote in June of 2021. And James French was there and he can tell you, you know, just how difficult it was. Nonetheless, it was passed and primarily because like it or not, you know, it was the right thing to do. But some people then said, now, wait a minute. This is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. And there was, uh, there began a lot of debate over what is this exactly going to look like? Who's going to do what? And what restrictions? I mean, it, they didn't really grasp the, the concept of structural parity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, everyone coming to the table was an equal voice. Mm-hmm. And so they, didn't, they really kind of backed, backed off from it. And then in March of, of this year, 2022, there was an 11 to 3 vote to undo structural parity. I was on the board by then. I came on the board in November of 2021. So I was there for the March vote. So I was one of the three right. that um, voted against changing the, the bylaws pretty back to pretty much the way they, they were before the June 2021. And there was a lot of efforts to let's talk it through and they didn't work. Mm-hmm. And so there was the media mm-hmm. came in and most were very supportive of structural parity and what the Montpelier Descendants Committee was trying to do and what they wanted for Montpelier through its work on the board. Mm-hmm. Well, that I mean, that's great to hear that you have the support of the media and some listeners might be wondering, why are we spending so much time on this and talking about Montpelier? Obviously because it's a connection for you and your family. But I think in my opinion, it's sort of a case study of kind of, you know, institutions and descendants working together, but also just even if, if your family is related to or were enslaved by, related and or enslaved by a family that maybe has a um, historical site, right? Or they were very powerful in the community and you're trying to work with them. You know, we can learn, uh, we can learn from other people's mistakes and changes and examples of how moving forward we can get to where we need to be. Like you said, everyone comes to the table equally. And I think that's important in doing research and important in having access to records. Because earlier in our conversation, you mentioned 
you feel that there's there's resistance and you may not be getting all the information you might need um, because of that resistance. And I know sometimes we will encounter that, but I really want, I appreciate you walking us through the Mount Pillar situation. I will be speaking with um, James French and we'll get a little bit deeper into that, um, but it's important to talk about it. So if, if, are there any, I guess, parting words, you know, before we end our conversation today? Oral history is important. It is especially important to African-American families because very often that's all we have that preserves the legacies our ancestors left for us. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Betty Kears, for being on Conversation with Kenyatta. I enjoyed this and so excited since we've known each other for so long to have you on here. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for inviting me. I enjoyed our conversation, too. Conversations with Kenyatta is produced by Kenyatta D. Berry and Caitlin Owl and features Kenyatta D. Berry. The music for this episode was Good Vibe by Ketza. Follow Kenyatta on Instagram under the handle kenyatta.berry, on Facebook at facebook.com slash kenyattadb, and on Twitter at kenyattadb. You can also find more information on her book and upcoming events on her website at kenyattaberry.com. As a reminder, the views expressed by guests on Conversations with Kenyatta are their own and do not reflect the views of Kenyatta D. Barry.